Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Today, it is an honor to again talk to Dr. Albert Moeller. He is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He hosts a daily podcast uh, called The Briefing, where he analyzes news and events from a Christian worldview. Today, we're going to talk about some of those worldview issues. What Christians do in light of the sexual moral revolution that seems to be going so quickly? How do we handle things like discerning the truth from the lie when it comes to reading media reporting? Uh, How do we make sure that we are continuing in truth and in love in an uncompromising and gracious way when it comes to how we use our language? So, for example, using uh, people's, quote, personal or preferred pronouns. We're going to talk about the issue of sexuality and marriage and how Christians can lovingly and kindly stand firm in these issues. And so you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. I'm very much looking forward to you listening to it. Uh, Without further ado, here is Dr. Albert Moeller. Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for joining me again. Um, you are such a voice of encouragement for me as I listen to you on a daily basis and trying to make sense of really what can only be described as confusion and chaos. That's something that you describe it as often as well, whether it's coming to gender identity and the sexual and moral revolution that you talk about so much, or just the intricacies of policy and court decisions. So first of all, thank you for that. Um, can you give a little bit of, first, brief encouragement to Christians who really just want to bury their head in the sand and to not look at what's going on culturally and politically and just pretend like none of it's happening because we don't know what to do about it? Do you think it's important for us to kind of keep abreast on what's going on and why? Well, it's great to be with you, Allie Beth. And uh, yes, I do want to offer that word of encouragement to Christians uh, not to uh, stick our heads in the sand and try to ignore uh, or be oblivious to what's going on, because it's not just that we we have to be faithful to Christ in the midst of our times. We we have to understand what we're up against there. But it's it's even more importantly that we, out of uh, love for Christ's church, for fellow believers, for our own children and grandchildren, need to be thinking through these issues even ahead of the culture in, in order to be faithful when the culture throws the uh, the, the, the next uh, the next weapon at us. And, and frankly, they're coming fast and furiously. And uh, just out of love for our own children and grandchildren uh, and uh, the determination that they grow up uh, and, and be faithful to Christ, it requires that we be very aware of the things going on around us. And I understand it's daunting and painful and it's complicated, but uh, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, has all the resources we need uh, to uh, confront these issues with faith and without fear. That doesn't mean that, that we don't understand what we're up against, but we, we respond with faith and, and without fear. So uh, that's a good word of encouragement. Uh, you know, knowing the truth is a good biblical principle, and uh, denying reality is, is never faithfulness. A lot of people find it hard to figure out what the truth is. They're... Um, isn't necessarily one source, one newspaper that people can go to and get a holistic understanding of one issue or one story. People feel like they have to read several different outlets to try to understand all the different angles and wade through all the biases of of just one story. Uh, What is your advice to people who are like, I don't have time to do all of that. I want to know the truth about something. How do they discern what's biased, what's not, and, and all of that when it comes to reading the news. 
Wow, that's a really good set of questions, Ali Beth. You know, uh, I, I was a newspaper editor, and uh, I am a theologian. That's my, my main calling. But I'm thankful for that experience in journalism and uh, and working with the media through the years. Uh, and I think we have to understand that, that to answer the first question, no, there's not a single source uh, in terms of uh, uh, of secular press that that we can turn to. There just isn't. Uh, there are more and less trustworthy sources. But I think one of the things we have to understand is that uh, that there's a culture of the media, and that's been true basically for, for decades, but it's increasingly true now, that the, the culture of the media is an incredibly small, self-selected, very secular, very wealthy, very... Uh, very much tied to the uh, the modern uh, academic culture, uh, very self-policing or not culture. In other words, they uh, they 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 see the world differently. Just uh, just today, for instance, I was listening to a report in, in which it uh, it referred to a uh, a, a pro-abortion politician to saying this this politician's been criticized for his defense of reproductive rights. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, this was presented as if it's just a neutral news story, but you and I know it's anything but. Helping Christians to understand what we hear, helping Christians to understand uh, why we do have to check sources and we have to look for authoritative issues. You know, one of the first rules of journalism I was taught is uh, don't trust anything written by anyone who can't be fired for writing it. Right. And uh, that's just a good starting place. That's not enough. But, you know, if no one can be fired for getting this wrong, don't trust it. Uh, but then again, we, we know that this is where Christians really need to be involved in conversation. I appreciate so much what you do uh, and your careful engagement. Uh, what I try to do on the briefing, you know, every weekday is, is to help Christians to think about not only what the media is talking about, but even how to judge what the media are doing. And you're raising a very important question. And it just points out the fact that, that we can't be listening to one secular voice and think we have anything close to a uh, trustworthy flow of information. One thing I notice when I'm listening to your podcast is how thoughtful and careful you are in your analysis of particular news stories, how you pick up on those words and phrases that most people don't necessarily notice have been swapped out for another phrase. And we just kind of get the general sense that this is a, a positive issue and this person is being unfairly criticized. Um, how have you kind of, I would say, honed that skill and that craft of being yeah. a careful reader and analyzer of what's going on in the news? Because I, I don't feel like I've perfectly honed it. There are many, many things you say on your podcast that I'm thinking, wow, I don't think I would have even noticed that. What can thoughtful Christians do to get better at being more considerate when they're reading a story? Just again, I love these questions, uh, and and I certainly uh, I, I miss things too, of course. But uh, uh, you know uh, what what I've tried to do over the years is is look at how language is being used, and and frankly, it's far more important to me as a theologian than a, than even someone who engages the media. But language is never neutral, and uh, and how language is deployed. Do you talk about abortion and the killing of the unborn, or do you talk about? reproductive health, reproductive rights, reproductive freedom. None of that's, none of that's neutral. And, uh, and, and the, the media in the United States, and frankly, it includes a lot of what people would think are conservative media, they're operating out of the same vocabulary list. And that's very, very dangerous when those words are, uh, are very carefully crafted in order to carry a moral agenda that we believe is, is contrary to Scripture. And, and uh, just to give you another example, I'm looking at a, a, a new source just a couple of hours ago. They were referring to gender alignment surgery. 
Right. Whoa. You know, that's the very same surgery that used to be called sex reassignment surgery. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it, it's horrifying and it's it, and it's very, you know, implications and reality. But you'll notice how all of a sudden that's changed. And and I try to document those changes. OK, here it would have been called uh, unethical, unimaginable, contrary to the Hippocratic Oath. Then it becomes gender reassignment surgery. Then mm-hmm. it becomes gender alignment surgery. Watching that is just, I think, really, really important. And I, I appreciate you you mentioning it. That, that's, that's what I try to draw attention to. The other thing is just to say that uh, the media have taken on a very, the mainstream media, the New York Times, Washington Post, they've taken on a different posture and a different set of ethics than they would have had just a, a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are much more explicitly uh, editorial in their news coverage. They, they are, they're, they're not only uh, acknowledging, they're kind of championing now advocacy journalism. And uh, it's a very good thing for Christians to know. It's, it's, it's not just that you've got uh, uh, news reports written by people who are much more liberal than average Americans, not to mention average American Christians, but they're now just owning this activism. And uh, that's a very good thing for us to know. You often talk about controlling the language means controlling the culture. And we've seen a shift in rhetoric and language as you're talking about so quickly over the past few years. And one of those shifts is in that realm of so-called gender identity and the use of someone's preferred pronouns. I get a lot of messages. We've talked about it on this podcast, but I still get a lot of questions about, um, okay, if my, you know, for example, I'm I'm in nursing school and they're asking me to put my gender pronouns on my name tag or this hospital or this business organization that I work at is requiring me to ask someone their preferred pronouns, even though I, I know that they're a woman and Christians want to know how to, how to navigate that. What's your advice? Well, you know, it's a, it's a very similar situation to a, a contact I received from uh, someone working in a hospital on the West Coast and then someone working in a prison, Chris, both of them Christians. And they said, look, I've got to do uh, input processing, uh, but one in a hospital, one in a prison. And uh, now with the transgender revolution, I have people who are saying X or Y. Uh, and uh, it's, it's obviously contrary to, uh, to their, uh, their actual biological reality. Yeah. This is going to be really tough for Christians uh, because the the people who are filling out these forms and doing these things or, or having to reveal a preferred pronoun, they're often not at all in charge of the policy. They're not in charge of uh, of what what happens in, in taking someone to a, a hospital, et cetera. And, and so there's a sense in which as Christians, we're going to have to figure out together, and this is going to require a lot of biblical thinking. It's going to require congregations, Christians talking to one another. What can I do and what can I not do? Where, where is what I'm doing consistent with my Christian faith? And uh, and, and and where is it so inconsistent? I can't do this anymore. Uh, I, I would say where it's elective, we must never get into the business of uh, of, of identifying our pronouns as if we have to. Um, but uh, you know, the White House has just put the preferred pronoun thing on its uh, its portal. This is the way the culture is going, and and that's what's so tragic about all of this. It, it's institutionalizing and coercing what we know to be untrue. Right. Uh, you know, there's just not an easy answer to that. You know, if you're working for a company that's, uh, that that isn't requiring you to affirm the, uh, the the moral revolution contrary to scripture, but you have to fill out a form, 
no, excuse me. If 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 you are male and you can say he, uh, him, that's not untrue. It's uh, it's ridiculous, but it's not untrue. It's it's true. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that that implies an entire worldview. And and Ali Beth, this is where we're headed. We're headed to the fact that students who are going to be applying for colleges and universities, people, teenagers applying for their first job, uh, you know, a, a lawyer who wants to become partner in a law firm, all of this is now going to be demanded of us. And uh, it's going to it's going to take a lot of really clear thinking, uh, which we can't always we can't always come up with the policy up front, but we better know our convictions up front. Yes. And I, I definitely agree with um, the idea that stating your preferred pronouns or putting it in the signature for your email if you work for a particular company, it acknowledges and affirms a particular worldview that gender identity is different than biological sex, which we just don't believe biologically or biblically to be true. It's just not um, a reality that is founded in science or any kind of uh, theological truth. So I do encourage people to resist as, as much as you yes. possibly can. And of course, we don't believe in and bearing false witness against someone. And so uh, we don't right. believe in lying about someone's sex as separate than their gender identity. It is very complicated. And I think some pushback that in particular conservative Christians get is, well, that's not loving your neighbor, not using preferred pronouns or not affirming someone's gender identity is unloving and hateful. And Jesus was just all about love, um, how can you empower someone to kind of refute that argument that they may get from progressives or progressive Christians? You know, Ali Beth, uh, one of the first principles of Christian thinking is what's called the uh, the unity of the transcendentals. And that sounds very abstract, but it comes down to the fact that the Bible presents the good, the beautiful, and the true as the same thing. The good, the beautiful, the true, and the loving as the same thing. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're united in in one is because it's God who is infinitely loving. It's God who's the source of all love. It's God who's infinitely true. And uh, and so God's not divisible. He, the, the good, the beautiful, and the true, the loving, it's all the same, which means telling a lie is never loving. It means telling someone the truth uh, uh, or refusing to tell someone the truth about themselves is never loving. It means that, uh, just as you say, bearing false witness is actually to break God's command. So Obviously, the uh, the attitude we have in dealing with people becomes a test of our love. But being required to tell a falsehood about someone is not an act of love. And and Jesus, by the way, who after all said, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life," and the truth. Uh, Jesus spoke so carefully. You know, the Jesus that people often imagine when they throw that out is not the Jesus who cleansed the temple. It's not the Jesus who spoke so sternly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not, it's not the Jesus who said, did you not know that from the beginning uh, God created marriage as the union of a, a man and a woman? Uh, this is, in other words, Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels never demonstrated truth in one place and love in another. It was always love and truth. And uh, that's a test for us because the culture around us, and frankly, even some Christians who aren't thinking very carefully are telling us, no, love means that you just uh, accept people as they are. Well, you know, that's the one thing that Jesus did do and didn't do. He accepted them exactly where they are, which meant as sinners. But he came to die for sinners in order that through his atoning sacrifice and our faith in him, we may be saved. In other words, he didn't love us as we are to leave us where we are. He he, he loved us as we are in, in order to uh, redeem us by his blood. That's a very different thing. 
Yes, and I would say that last part is exactly the characteristic of Jesus that people um, like to forget about when they're talking about Jesus affirming various identities or social movements in the name of love. Well, he cared so much about sin that he he died for it. This kind of hippie social revolutionary that I think a lot of progressives describe Jesus as just isn't in alignment with who he is in the Gospels, but it's also not in alignment with the Gospel in general. It's a completely different religion. And uh, something that I think that we are seeing, I think we're seeing a lot of churches kind of wrestle with that. Unfortunately, it seems like a lot of Christians don't feel like they have the equipment to even be able to answer questions that are really answered in the first book of the Bible, in the first chapters of the Bible. What is male and female? What does marriage and family look like according to God? Why do you think it is that so many churches that may have historically, or denominations that may have historically been solid on this issue, they so quickly seed ground? Well, Ali Beth, I think what we're seeing is a lot of them have very little commitment to biblical truth and biblical theology. And uh, biblical theology comes down to the fact that you just indicated exactly the right reflex for Christians. Our reflex should be, what's marriage? Well, the Creator gets to decide. What's the meaning of male and female? Well, the Creator decides and has revealed to us in the first sentences of Scripture. And that means that the Scripture storyline going all the way through takes as its absolute premise an unconditional affirmation that God made us in His image, male and female created He them. And that uh, that Adam and Eve... uh, our first parents were united in marriage. Therefore, they were in the in the in the garden naked and not ashamed. And, and God establishes uh, human humanity, creates us in His image, establishes marriage, and then the the family, the natural family. By the time you get to the end of Genesis two, you have the the mechanism, the means whereby God is allowing human beings to be faithful to the command He's given us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's plan was that from the beginning. And then we follow through the storyline of Scripture all the way to men and women redeemed by Christ of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. You you, you have to follow this through. And, and again, how many Christians have the instinct you just demonstrated to say, well, I don't have to kind of figure out by mood what the Bible says about marriage. I don't, I don't, you know, I can start right in the first two chapters of Scripture. And here's the thing. Jesus himself was so clear the Scripture cannot be broken. Not one jot or tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. Jesus never said, well, this is the Old Testament uh, definition of uh, uh, of humanity, of, of of gender and sex, and you know, I'm using contemporary words, but you get the point I'm meaning. He affirmed everything, and here's the thing: it's, the, it's part of the most glorious demonstration. You see it especially in the Gospel of John. Jesus, for instance, in John chapter nine, when he has the man blind from birth, and he is confronted by him, what does he do? He reaches to the ground and he and he spits on the dirt and and puts it on the man's eyes and says, "Go go wash." But here's the thing. He is the very agent of creation who made the first human being, Adam, out of the dust Mm -hmm. and breathed life into him. And the New Testament just goes back and says, okay, what Jesus is saying is is what the Creator is saying, because Jesus was the Logos, the very very Lord of creation from the beginning by the Father's decree. And I, I don't mean to get too deep in the theological weeds here. It just, and I bet that just... It just gives me such security to know that Jesus is actually demonstrated by his words and by his deeds, the fact that he is the fulfillment of everything that we find beginning in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He never contradicted it. 
Yes. And I think that that is also why people get very confused in their theology as it affects the rest of their worldview is because there is um, a trend of kind of separating Jesus from the Godhead or separating Jesus from what people say is the God of the Old Testament and saying that Jesus kind of just did away with all of that. The God of the Old Testament is this bigot, wrathful God that we really don't have to worry about. We can, um, what's the term, unhitch from the Old right. Testament uh, because it is, it, it's no longer relevant. And I think that is also how, even though you could speak to how this argument doesn't even work, that is also how people kind of feel like they can get permission to redefine things like gender and marriage and sexuality because they think all of that was left in the Old Testament. And finally, we just have this uber tolerant hippie in the New Testament who establishes that the only rule is the is that there is no rule. Um, right. Can you tell us why that is just a poor hermeneutic? That's a poor understanding of who Jesus is and how to read the Bible. It's a, just a denial of scripture. It's a denial of verbal inspiration. It's a denial of, uh, well, for instance, you just said it rightly. There's so many people who say, well, there's this, there's this Old Testament God and the Old Testament about him that we have to unhitch from in order to uh, to get to Christianity. So what Jesus profoundly would not do. I mean, look at the Gospel of Matthew. These things happen in order that the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament, might be fulfilled. It's Jesus himself making very clear that the pattern is not Old Testament and then New Testament correction. It's Old Testament promise and New Testament fulfillment. And you're so right, Elibeth. There's so many people who want to separate Jesus from the Old Testament, but we have to note, they also want to separate Jesus from Paul. Mm, and yes. uh, and and the clearest statements on homosexuality, and and frankly, our entire understanding of these issues, is uh, is found in exposition, not in the Old Testament, but in the uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul. You take a passage like Romans chapter one; it it not only explains the sin and documents the sin of same sex sexual activity, it goes at same sex passion, and it goes to the very root of it and explains it in the strongest terms of biblical condemnation, not to single out um, uh, homosexuals as uh, as sinners in contrast to the rest of humanity, but rather to demonstrate the depths of sin into which human beings have fallen. Mm-hmm. And uh, you take 1 Corinthians, you take uh, his letters to Timothy. Uh, you, if you're going to do this, you're also going to have to separate Jesus from Jesus. Uh, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, where he defines God's purpose and definition of marriage. And, and that's why, by the way, the liberals who do this, they're never satisfied just to say, out with the Old Testament or out with the Apostle Paul. They eventually have to say, out with a lot of the Gospels, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what that the group known as the Jesus Seminar was all about. It's the same trick. But uh, this is where Christians, our alarm bells need to go off and just say, no, we are accountable to every single word of Scripture. As Martin Luther said, every single word of Scripture. It's not only Scripture says, it's God says. Right. And those who call themselves, you know, deconstructionists or encourage people to so-called deconstruct their faith, they will take something like sexuality, homosexuality, and say, well, it's just these few verses in Leviticus or Romans, but really it means this, or really it's been translated this way, or it was added in in the 1940s. But again, that's a poor understanding of 
how to read the Bible. We use an alliteration on this podcast, if I can even remember it from, um, from, from memory, about the definition of marriage in the positive sense, not just in the negative of what it's not, but in the positive sense is rooted in creation. It's reiterated throughout scripture. It's repeated by Jesus himself. It is in Ephesians 5, we see that it's representative of Christ in the church, which means that it is reflective of the gospel. And so we're talking about something with eternal gospel significance. We're not talking about a few verses in Leviticus that we get to decontextualize that people have used to establish this, whatever they call it, cis-heteropatriarchal oppression. I mean, we're talking about a positive, eternal sense of what marriage actually is. And that's why it's not one of those issues to me that we can just say, well, yeah, sure, we kind of disagree on that, but that's just a peripheral issue. Um, I, I hope I'm not trying to make too big of a deal of that, though. People would accuse me of being political for doing so. Well, I mean, eventually, uh, because these issues come down to policy, they become political. And there's no way to uh, deal with these issues, honestly, without running the risk of someone saying you're being political. Yes, I believe the law should protect, for instance, the life of the unborn. If you want to call that political, uh, I'll say to my critics and uh, Yes, I want that to be policy. Uh, politics is the way that establishes policy. But, you know, when you're talking about, uh, for instance, the argument, you hear these people especially, and, and by the way, it's not so much these days, the LGBTQ, the secular activist community, that, uh, that I think is, is our problem in the sense of uh, our, most of our immediate arguments. It, it, it's with kind of leftist evangelicals who style themselves that way who want to say, well, yeah, maybe it's true that they're just like these seven clobber scriptures. And I'm going to come back and say, well, number one, just in terms of, of, of our understanding of the Bible, if, if there was just one sentence in the right. Bible that this is wrong, then it would be eternally wrong because God said it. But we're not just talking about seven clobber scriptures. That's the way they, they try to dismiss them. Um, in, in the New Testament in particular, there is a use of vocabulary that frankly is so candid especially in Paul, the, the language is so candid that there is no doubt what we're talking about here. People try to say, look, you know, the, old, the, uh, the Bible, either the older or the new, didn't know about the idea of sexual orientation. Oh yeah, Paul did. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. He's talking about uh, those who are burning with passion, uh, both men and women, uh, uh, for others of the same sex. He, he understands what he's talking about. And, and all that to say that uh, uh, our understanding of Scripture comes down to whether or not we just start out saying, we know that God's given us not only what He has spoken to us, but all that we need. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. We have an all we need to understand these things. The Bible's not going to be corrected by uh, modern uh, medical uh, arguments. It's not going to be corrected by uh, the sexual revolutionaries. It's not going to be corrected by the Divinity School at Harvard. Uh, the Bible's going to stand uh, just as it is. We're not in need of some kind of therapeutic knowledge from the 21st century to help us to understand what God really intended. Yes. And I think it's so important for us to just re-emphasize that truth, when it comes to the Christian life, is not separate from love. So we don't talk about this and say, this is how we hate people, or this is how we otherize people, or we are emphasizing this sin as the chief 
sin or anything like that. The reason that we're talking about this so much is because it is such a pressing cultural issue. It's a sensitive, a rightfully sensitive cultural issue because you're talking about uh, people in a very personal way. You're talking about people that you love, people that you want to be hospitable and kind and respectful to. So the reason that we are kind of centering the conversation on this is because so many Christians want to know how to be truthful and how to be loving and how to be Christ-like without compromising um, on this issue. And it can yes. be very difficult when you're hearing people, like you said, who profess to be Christian saying, well, the only way to love is through total acceptance and basically having no daylight between you and any atheist, morally, sexually, politically. And Christians just kind of, we have to resist that thinking. Well, absolutely. And we have to understand where it comes from. It's really separating God from the good. I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, if the if God is is good and he has given us a perfect word, then to insinuate that somehow standing on that truth and affirming it, teaching it, sharing it with people, if that's not good, then you're saying God's not good. Or you're saying that the Bible's not really his, uh, his, his perfect self-revelation. And uh, once you say that, then frankly, Ali Beth, it, it, you know, whatever you believe is your own little personal religion. And, and, and uh, whatever God you believe in is your own little personal imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes down to one other thing. You know, the, I can remember when I was nine, and uh, my, my parents uh, surrounded me with the gospel. I was at vacation Bible school, and uh, I heard the preacher talk about sin. And then I realized, wait just a minute. He's, not just saying that I have done wrong things. He's saying that I am a sinner. That, that was when I came to Christ. Uh, and uh, it was because all of a sudden I understood I'm a sinner. That's a very different thing than understanding I've sinned. Okay, so I'm a sinner. Paul talks about this in the, in the book of Romans. And he makes the most amazing statement. He said, I, I would not have known my sin had the law not, not said, you shall not covet. Mm. And that's so important because Paul said, okay, I'm only saved. I've only come to faith in Christ because I know I'm a sinner. And it, it, only the scripture tells me I'm a sinner. And he mentions that specific of the commandments, you shall not covet. And, and that's what Paul is doing. That's what God's doing. The Holy Spirit's doing through Paul. And, and so it comes down to the fact that if we love someone, we want to love them to faith in Christ. We want to love them to themselves understanding their sin and their need for a Savior. We want to love them to knowing the fully sufficient Savior of the unfailing gospel. And and so we have to be spoken to and we have to speak to others with the same specificity as the Bible does, because God loves us to be so specific. Mm-hmm. Backing off that specificity isn't kind, it's consigning people to hell. Right. Well, and I think it's also so easy to kind of give in to the rhetoric, the people who say that, um, you know, you have blood on your hands. If you're someone who talks about what the Bible has to say about gender and sexuality, you're the one that's causing people to be depressed, anxious, and suicidal if you speak about this. Well, that's the last thing that a Christian wants to do. That's the last thing that a Christian wants to be. It's so easy to buy into that. But like you've said, if, if God is love, then everything that he says is good or bad is also done from love. And far be it from us to claim that we have the authority to redefine love as something other than what God says that it is. And so Christians do have all of the equipment 
in the scriptures to be able to kind of push back against what really is a lot of bullying and a lot of manipulation in order to silence Christians from speaking the truth, right? No, that's, that's so well said. And, you know, Ali Beth, you made reference to the transgenderism issue. And, uh, you know, let's put it this way. It's not biblically-minded Christians who've now forced on seven-year-olds the anxiety of trying to figure out if they're really a boy or a girl. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's not biblically-minded Christians who have driven through the entire society an instability in personal identity that, that led to the development of what can only be described as a radical and never-ending identity politics. Uh, it's, it's not biblically-minded Christians who injected this uh, therapeutic mentality into the culture that says it's all about you going inside yourself to find out who you are, which, by the way, has to be one of the most depressing experiences for any human being. Yeah. Uh, and and so I I, uh, I find it very telling that now Christians are being blamed for creating instability and anxiety when, frankly, Christians teaching the same thing for over two millennia are uh, are actually the only people who haven't changed our story. Yeah, that's true. And I think what you said about this idea of going on this journey of self-actualization and self-discovery being depressing is actually part of what's behind a lot of the pastors acquiescing about this particular subject, because we've kind of bought the secular New Age lie that the biggest problem that people are facing is a lack of self-esteem, when really the biggest problem that people are facing, no matter their race, no matter their gender, no matter their socioeconomic status, is that we are dead in our sin apart from Christ. Um, and so I think that's a lot of times why pastors may, they maybe they avoid talking about sin, because we've believed that the most important thing we can give someone is self-confidence. And like you said, how depressing if on our self-confidence, we have to stand at the end of the day, because I don't know about you, but mine wavers about every other second, depending on a variety of circumstances. I, yes. Uh, you know, uh, if, if, I dependent, if I'm dependent upon myself for my own self-definition, my own self-security, my own uh, self-therapy and all the rest, I'll just say up front, I'm doomed. I pretty much had that figured out when I was six, I think. I certainly knew it when I was 16. I'm now in my 60s. And let me tell you, I've abandoned all hope. Uh, <laughs> You know, the last thing I need is to define myself. I'm no better at it it's in my 60s than I was when I was six. Uh, the security for a child, by the way, comes when the parent says, we know exactly who you are. I'm going to tell you who you are. That's what, the that's what the creator does, even in our bodies, by the way. He's saying, I know who you are. I created you. I'm telling you who you are. And uh, th that, that has been security for human beings through millennia. Uh, we're in the midst of a vast cultural conspiracy to undo that security. And it comes right down to what you mentioned, you know, the preferred pronouns, as if pronouns are a preference. What kind right. of insanity is that? Right. I love what you said, and I think that's a great place for us to end that place of comfort that we don't have to look inside of ourselves. We don't have to look to the media. We don't have to look to culture. We don't have to look to uh, social whims or movements to tell us who we are, or authors or influencers or podcasters, this billion-dollar self-help industry. We don't have to go to these people who don't know us, by the way, don't know our names, don't care about us. A lot of these activist communities don't care about these kids that they are convincing are confused at, you know, five years old. Some of these people in the scientific community, they don't necessarily care about you. They don't care about your kids, but God does. And he cares enough to tell us who we are so we can get off that hamster wheel of self-identification. Um, so thank you so much for reminding us of that. I hope people are leaving this conversation feeling comforted. Can you remind everyone where they can find you, how they can follow and support you? 
Thank you so much, Ali Beth. I always enjoy these conversations. Uh, Albert Moeller, that's Albert, M-O-H-L-E-R.com, The Briefing, Thinking in Public, and uh, a host of actually thousands of articles. I appreciate you allowing me to say that. If I could just say one final word, it's this. Yes. You know, part of what it means to love Christ uh, for the Christian church and for individual Christians is to say to people, after the world's told you all these lies, and after you tried every kind of therapy, after you've undergone any kind of surgery, we're the ones who are going to be here to love you uh, when everyone else has abandoned you. The people of grace and truth. And it's it's a part of what we need to say to ourselves. We need to, to remember to be here uh, for the broken with grace and truth when the world, having lied to them, abandons them. Absolutely. We don't just care about you when you are politically useful to us. We care about you because you are an image bearer and we care about your heart and your soul. We know that you're more than just a body. You're more than just an agent of the state. And you're right. Christianity has been the refuge for all kinds of marginalized people throughout our history. And we have to continue to be that. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Moeller, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Allie Beth. God bless you.